You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. So I'm going to give you a quiz to start out, okay? And those of you who've been around here long enough, it's kind of like when, when I was in college, by the time I got done, if I had the same professor several times, I had studied the teacher enough to know how to do well on the exams. So some of you who know Steve already know the answer to this question, and that is, what is the exact opposite of fear? And don't have to raise hands, but some of you are always saying, okay, I'm way ahead of him on this one, all right? Now, a long time ago, I would have said trust, and in in reality, those certainly are on opposite ends. But if I were to say, biblically, what is the opposite of fear? You have to say, well, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is, okay, because you ready for this? All right. Love. Love is the precise opposite of fear. John said, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. What would make you willing to overcome your fear of spiders or snakes or the dark or people? What would make you willing to step out and do the things that you normally wouldn't do because you're just afraid? The thing that you're avoiding this coming week that you've been putting off and putting off and putting off and it always goes to the bottom of your list. What would motivate you to step in and do that this week. And I am arguing that ultimately it is love that makes us do what we don't feel like doing or what we're afraid of doing in this case. I'm bringing that out because that's the context we're reading now. When you look at at love, the call of a husband to a wife, and this is in in Ephesians chapter 5 from Paul, this picture of Christ in the church, this picture of Jesus pursuing his bride and rescuing her and sanctifying her. That's the husband and wife picture, and you have one verse packed with so much written to husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7. Really what ought to drive this, men, What ought to drive this treatment of your wife is a cross-centered, a gospel-empowered love for God that drives you to love your wife. So I'll I'll just give you an example of this, and I'm I'm actually pulling these next bulleted points from a book by Lou Priolo, uh, would be a good one to have on your shelves, called The Complete Husband. Love versus fear and selfishness. If you are a man who could have been at one point in time described by your wife as selfish or afraid, there's a remedy for that. There's a way of living out these commands that you're being given in 1 Peter 3, 7. Those distinctions are this. Love is being more concerned with what I can give than what I can get. That's pretty simple. On the other hand, selfishness is being more concerned with what I can get than what I can give, right? So if you've ever been categorized as a selfish person, and uh, I'll I'll, I'll qualify this message ahead of time, and I did the same thing last week. If, If you're not a husband, will you listen anyway? Because 
the Spirit gave these words to Peter to give to the church. So these are things for all of us. You listen to the news and you hear, don't eat romaine lettuce. You say, so? I don't have any romaine lettuce in my fridge. I hate romaine lettuce. We eat iceberg all the time. That's great, but that, that doesn't mean you're not in a position to receive that information. Maybe pass it on to someone else. It, it, it may be, you may be tempted next time you're in the store to buy romaine lettuce. So if you're not married, if you're not a husband, if you have no means of being a husband in the future, boy, we're, we're rearing a bunch of future husbands around here, and we want a culture in our church that, that will strengthen Christians in their, in their marriages, that will strengthen parent-child relationships, that will strengthen employee-employer relationships, that will strengthen your relationship with living God as you walk in public. Now, doesn't that include everyone? So now we'll go on. Selfishness is being more concerned with what I can get than what I can give, and fear is being more concerned with what I might lose than with what I can give. Again, those came from Lou Priolo's book, The Complete Husband. So we start our text. Husbands, in the same way, if you weren't here last week, we really have to go back and, and say, wh in what way? What are we talking about? Because it said, likewise, you wives, at the very beginning. That's just not the way you normally start a conversation. You don't normally start in and say, likewise, what are we learning? We are being pointed back to something else. So if you have a Bible in front of you, let's go back to what he's pointing out. 1 Peter chapter 2, the previous chapter, starting at verse 21. Got it in your app or your hard copy? For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. He, he was talking about persecution, about Christians struggling, suffering. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Ow! What were those steps? Being out of your comfort zone. Being treated unfairly by people, unjustly by people. In all of our relationships, he's saying we've been called to that. Not just because we're Christians, but because we're living in a sin-cursed world and people will not always behave entirely sanctified around you. And so he says, talking about Jesus, who suffered certainly the ultimate injustice, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, now get this, because it is the key phrase, it's the hub around which a lot of this section of 1 Peter is written, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And then he talks about Jesus bearing our sins in his body on the cross. The question is, what do you fear? If, if you ever look at people who are in charge of, of one thing or another, I realize that a lot of us have been in situations, in family situations and in work situations, where the person in charge really loved being in charge and loved to give orders, and that pretty much is all they did. Well, that, of course, is not the kind of leadership that God calls any leader to, particularly in this context, husbands. 
The point is, when you're being God's kind of leader, you're going to be a servant, like Jesus was. At the Last Supper, he gets down and wraps a towel around himself and starts washing the dirty feet of the disciples. That's the kind of love he's modeling, and that's the kind of love that husbands are being called to. Why would you be afraid in that circumstance? See, this is more than you get to be in charge. Some of you who have spent a lot of time in leadership in various capacities realize that leadership in one way, while there, there are joys to being able to lead, you get a target on your back. There are people who covet your leadership position. There are people who will question every move you make because after all, gossip's wrong, but not when you're gossiping about someone who's leading. There are people who, who really don't understand what it is to be in that position. When you are in that position, and, and uh, men, if you are a husband, this text is putting you in that position. When you are in that position, there is great responsibility that comes along with the delights of leading. The responsibility of being a servant. And so we go on to, so what's the fear thing going into this? Why is he talking about fear? I will say that a man's gentle care for his wife is a direct reflection of his level of trust in God because when you serve someone, when you say, what can I do? How do you need my help? You may very well get a response to that. Really? Well, I'll tell you what you can do. In fact, sometimes when you know you're on those terms, the person you're serving doesn't even wait for you to ask. The person says, you know, could you? And there's, it's like, oh, no. Making yourself available carries with it a, a certain perceived risk, right? It may be a fearsome prospect for a man to do for his wife what God calls him to do, to be a servant, to be a servant leader. And I want you to remember, guys, because of this context, you are not in her hands but God's. What if she takes advantage of you? What if she's constantly asking you to do stuff? What if you had other plans? What if kickoff is in 15 minutes and she's given you a 45-minute job? That's the persecution he's talking about here, isn't it? Or, or is this a way of saying convenience is not always a prerequisite to service? You may be vulnerable when you start behaving as a servant. And that's for everybody, not just husbands. You run the risk that somebody's going to take advantage of your kindness and they're going to want more and more and more. What do you do? So then we say, well, what did Jesus do? Because we're being called to follow in his steps here. And what was, and this is not, this is more than, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, this is more than just uh, trying to do what Jesus did. What did he call his people to do? To, to give more. And you'll be taken beyond your ability to endure. Now, I want to point out that this, you husbands, in the same way, uh, live with your wives in an understanding way. I'm, I'm paring this down, and we're just covering in English two words, live with 
and you'll notice the New American Standard inserts your wives, and rightly so. But I want to focus on that, that living with your wives. I know it can't stand alone, and it's talking about living with them in an understanding way. I'm, I'm going to hammer on that in a minute, guys. But, but this, this command implies that being an understanding husband can't be done from a distance. He didn't just say, be understanding. And again, we'll talk about that in a minute. So live with them in an understanding way. This is, a, this is a cohabitation thing. You can't live for Jesus in isolation from relationships. That's a broad statement. But you can't live in a marriage without being together. Typically, when I do marriage counseling, the first question I ask um, after giving homework and a couple comes uh, and, and I say, so how, how was your week? And sometimes I hear, it was horrible. It was horrible. And once in a while I hear, well, it was great. So I want to pursue that a little bit more. It's, well, why was it great? You know, you were getting along better. We didn't fight once this week while he was on a business trip. But that is not success. <laughs> to say, we, it was such an intense temptation to, to get selfish and be demanding and, and just think that all of my happiness had to be wrapped up in my mate's performance. And, and things didn't go like I would have written them out. But you know, we fought against ourselves, against our own flesh, and it, it was a lot better. At that point, I'm saying, yes. Because what's happening is God's people are saying, you know, uh, we're, gonna, we're in this together. Someone told me once who was in the middle of a, a brawl uh, that, they, that they wished, uh, it, well, in the context of I'm going to divorce my husband, uh, I wish divorce was illegal. And I said, because, it's like, well, then I couldn't do it. I ponder that for a moment. The, the laws of God, the laws of man. Whom do you fear? This living with your wives in an understanding way, men, means that uh, your job is not just to provide an income from a distance. You can't be running away. You stay in and you live the life God's empowered you to live it's not living with your wife if you run away from conflict. So the command is not simply to keep the same street address as your wife. The point is this, before we get to the understanding part, the point is that you're in this together. You are in this together. Whatever the laws on marriage and divorce and remarriage are, when you have made this covenant and you are in the status of married right now, you are with the one whom it pleases God for you to serve and to stay with and to carry out your role. God did not make a mistake when he let you be in this circumstance. You don't run from conflict, men. You don't run from the hard things in your relationship. Stay in. Don't walk away. Don't be a coward because perfect love drives out fear. And you can't love her if you don't spend time with her. Live there. 
Stop being a passive wimp. Live there and take it and love her and serve her however she responds. That's the point. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And let me just totally clear that up, literally, according to knowledge. Did that clear that up for you? I'm guessing some of you have a study Bible and there's a footnote, but in an understanding way is really a, a great way to put this in the way we talk anyway. What it means is you should make it your business to know your marital responsibilities. There are, newsflash, men, women are different from you. Seriously. No, seriously. Seriously. There is a, when you, when you take it upon yourself to, to study, I, I hear, and, and this is hard for me to relate to, but, but ladies, you've probably heard it said that uh, it, you're like a, a, a browser with a whole bunch, you know, 60 tabs open. There's a complexity, which is a, a beautiful thing about the way God wired you, the way God designed you. And the reason why is why your husband has a hard time understanding you is because he is wired very, very differently. He's like, I heard one person describe it, he's, he's like a four-year-old who shaves. It's just what you see is what you get. There's a simple thing, you know, what are you thinking? I was just, was just thinking that pigs are bigger than you thought they were. And so, so you understand some of the conflict that comes on. It has to do with understanding. Do you really think the Spirit of God, the creator of everything, understands that, that the, the differences between the sexes are not a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden? The differences between the sexes are the way God created us. And that means we can celebrate, delight in, make the most of those differences and praise the Lord for them. So when he says you're living with her according to knowledge, guys, what that means is, and uh, been married a long time, the book isn't finished being written yet, not even close. I've probably written the biggest chapters of this book, uh, this book called Knowing Sarah, to be a student of your wife. That, that's it. I mean, what's, what's the book you read? You say, well, you got to read the Bible. Yes, you, you do need to read the Bible. Not asking for Sunday school answers, but the truth is, the book that you're reading is your wife. You are studying her. You are finding out not, not simply what's her love language, which that's a good thing to know. What are the things that make her feel loved? But, but to know uh, her weaknesses, to know her strengths, to know what encourages her, to know what whether when she comes to you with a problem, whether you're supposed to feel it or fix it. To, to be able to know her in such a way, and that doesn't mean all women are alike, you're being called to know your wife. Live with your wife in an understanding way, according to knowledge. Make it your business to know your marital responsibilities and make it your business to know your wife, more than just her shoe size and her dress size. Be understanding even when you don't understand. We back up to the, in the same way, husbands, in the same way as what? It's like, I'm afraid. This is just, just, just too much work. 
Too much work. Go back and read chapter two. Is it really too much work? There's a, a vow that you made, probably, if you're married. Live with her in an understanding way. He modifies that, by the way, uh, as with someone weaker. And some of your Bibles use the word weaker vessel, and that might even be a, a better translation. That word someone uh, is used in other places as, as a, a vessel. The word is a lot of times translated um, vessel because it's used to refer to a metal container or a clay container. And so in this case, the adjective weaker conjures an image of a wife as a fragile container worthy of special care. Ladies, by the way, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. It's not spiritual weakness. It's not intellectual weakness. It's not even emotional weakness. It's emotional difference. And when you've been in a relationship for a long time, this is, not, I mean, this, is, this is a general statement about men and women, and it's a call to all men everywhere to treat their wives in this way. It's a status that makes her worthy of special care. Theologian and, and biblical counselor George Scipioni who actually uh, corrected my, my theological exam when I prepared to be a, a certified biblical counselor. I, I love this quote from him. Your wife is Ming Dynasty China, not Tupperware. <laughs> Don't you love that? You're treating her as something valuable because she is. She was created in the image of God and she was wired to be your helper, to be what complements you and your strengths, and whether you believe opposites attract or not, I don't think it has to be opposites, but you certainly lack strength, men, that your wife has to complement your weaknesses, to make up for your weaknesses. This doesn't say, again, that a wife is cognitively or spiritually weaker. In fact, you see the next phrase, we're going to get to that. What it highlights is this. Men are generally, generally, Physically stronger, I know there are a lot of women who could just pound me, even though I'm a big guy. But women and men are generally governed differently in the area of emotions, for instance. And an understanding husband is going to handle her with, with that fragile container picture in mind. Even though she, she may work really, really hard, maybe, maybe she's had to put on a tough exterior because you haven't been taking care of her the way you should. Peter says, and show her honor. The Holy Spirit through Peter says, show her honor, assign a to her a fitting value. This is a participle here. It could be translated, well, showing her honor, portioning out to her honor. And that word honor really does point to uh, the value you place on a person or, or even an object. And what it means that men, as a provider in your home, you have a responsibility to value your wife. Yes, you honor all people because they're created in the image of God. That, that's, that's a command in scripture too. You honor everyone. But you honor your Christian wife in particular because she is created in the image of God and she stands as an equal with you 
before him. Now, Peter's going to make a point, and I'll, I'll put it in my words, but then we'll go back to the Spirit's words through Peter. You cannot, men, be right with God if you are in any way mistreating your wife, if you aren't, if you aren't living this out, if you are taking unfair advantage of her, if, if you are, it's like, well, she's a servant and we really don't need two of those around here. If, if you in any way are, are taking advantage of, of her weaknesses, you cannot walk with God. You can't be right with God if you're not right with his people and that plays out in particular importance in your home. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's not just your wife, she's your sister in Christ. She stands to inherit everything you will inherit. Matthew Henry, who is, uh, was actually Charles Spurgeon's apparently favorite commentary. There weren't a whole lot of them in print in those days, but Matthew Henry, we could classify him as a Puritan commentator. He poetically described the relationship between man and woman as God intended it. Um, I believe this was from his commentary on Genesis. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Thank you, Matthew Henry. Good picture, men, for the way you ought to be treating your bride. He says... She's a fellow heir of the grace of life. Treat her that way so that your prayers will not be hindered. There it is. So that your prayers will not be hindered. It, it's an interesting final challenge to husbands, isn't it? Some people suggest that Peter was just saying, if you're fighting all the time, you don't have time to pray. So marital strife is the problem here. We've got all this marital strife and we just, we're not praying enough. I, I don't think that's the hindrance to prayer, do you? The word translated hindered actually carries the idea of being cut off or impeded. And you apply that to prayer. What would happen if your prayers were cut off? I do believe it's true that, that lack of prayer is a big sin among believers. Not just the fact that corporate prayer meetings are often the least supported service a church has, which is tragic. But even in your own personal disciplines, your own walk with God, prayer is just, it, it's, it's easy to go out the window. We're lazy. We don't see the need when things are going well. But even if that discipline isn't something that you're developing and working hard on and repenting of the neglect of that, there have been times, right, when you say, I got nothing. And I'm begging God, begging God to intervene and to step in here. Have it prayed much at all lately, been living like a practical atheist, what would it be like to have no access to God in prayer at that time? Let alone the pray without ceasing times that believers ought to be having. You apply this to prayer, that your prayers be not hindered. You apply your marriage relationship to prayer. And what you're going to see is that Peter argued that your fellowship with God which includes the life-giving communication of prayer, will be cut off if you do not treat your wife as prescribed here. What a dark existence. What a dark existence. And, and I, I'm guessing that most of you who've walked with Christ for a while understand that loneliness 
when, you, when you've not been right with God and you, you finally realize, what have I done? Why, how have I wandered so far? There's, a, there's an urgency that comes over you then. There's a longing that comes over you at that point. And maybe you're there right now. You're out of fellowship with God and you haven't prayed. The psalmist spoke of the sweetness of, of this kind of communion in Psalm 66. The psalmist talks about the sweetness of communion and what happens to those who harbor sin in their hearts. And it, it really is a, a reflection of what Peter's saying here. Come and hear all who fear God and I will tell of what he's done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and he was extolled with my tongue. We would insert, but, because there's a thought change, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But, certainly God has heard. He's given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. There's a role that you have in your home, and this certainly applies to every believer, but to men in particular, there's a job description. I had a friend in ministry years ago, actually a leader, one, a guy who could be classified as a mentor, and he just said, I love lists. Give me a list and I'll get it done. Give me a list and go look on my desk and see my legal pad. I, I can't say give me a list and I'll get it done because I keep sliding things into the next week. <laughs> but I, I like crossing the stuff off. I'm not saying your motivation ought to be in this list I'm giving you, this job description, husbands. I'm not saying that this is just something to be crossed off. For the glory of God, because Jesus died to rescue you from what you are, this is God's job description. Young ladies, when you are uh, in the market or on the market, however you're going to term this, are you really going to settle for a guy who's hot? Settle for a guy who's drop-dead gorgeous and who, who knows how to say the right words to make you feel good? Or is there something richer that a Christian young woman should want? Don't expect him to change this way. Christian husband, here it is. Trust God enough to conquer your fear of the commitment of marriage. <laughs> are, are we not in a day of throw-away relationships? I don't even need a contract to get a cell phone, let alone a marriage. You really think marriage is just a piece of paper? It's a covenant. It's a holy, sacred covenant. It's a lifetime covenant and there are a lot of men who are, who are too wimpy to make that commitment for life. Trust God enough to conquer, men, your fear of the commitment of marriage. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. That's scripture's description of, of a good wife. Second of all, you married men study her and know her. We saw that in the text, right? Study and know your wife. Learn what makes her feel loved. Learn what makes her feel secure. I remember my dad's words when uh, he was, I was in college and, and his, all of a sudden, dad's in his 50s and his work situation just all changed very much. The econ farm economy was going sour and he was in a place where he was looking for work. And 
he made a statement to me. He said, your mom really needs that security. And he was talking about making an investment and buying a business. And it, it wasn't that mom was being demanding. His point was, he lived with her 30-some years, and he knew very well that, that there was a role that he played in making her feel secure. That's what Peter's talking about. Study her and know her. That doesn't mean you always give her everything she wants. It just means that you give her everything that you can within the boundaries of God's goodness, within the boundaries of the scriptures. Get to work. Treat her like your most valuable earthly possession because she is. Say, well, you, you don't know my wife. Well, as soon as you say that, I know something about you that I wish I didn't know. Treat her like your most valuable earthly possession because she is that. If you don't see it, you have missed what God designed a marriage to be. Number four, and by the way, Again, young ladies, please pay attention to this. This is an application of the word of God that you, a filter that you ought to be putting guys through. They don't have to measure up to some, some outward standard of beauty or, or wealth, but there are some basics. Obviously, the ultimate basic is, does he follow Jesus and love him more than he loves you? But second of all, look at this. Is he humble? Does he treat you well? Humble yourself and Use your wife's spiritual strengths. How much pride goes into a marriage relationship when a man is, is too much of a wimp to listen to his wife, too proud, too proud to recognize that very often the first words that ought to come out of his mouth were, I was wrong. And then the next words immediately following should be, please forgive me or I, I need your forgiveness. To humble yourself and use your wife's strengths, particularly her spiritual strengths, because she is, if she's a believing wife, she's your sister in Christ. Authority and spiritual maturity don't necessarily go together. So men, you learn from the ways your wife walks more closely with God than you do. Uh, one, of, one of the biggest challenges I had for my wife in recent years, there have been a lot of them, uh, she had read... Uh, um, and so now I'm talking about my wife, so I think I owe royalties to give to the kids. Um, a woman that I am married to, I won't mention her name, read uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss's book, um, uh, Showing Gratitude? Something. The Gratitude Book, anyway. Uh, well, I didn't read the book, but I didn't have to. It's like, wow. Look at just the, the kinds of things that you can get from your wife and just watching the way she's walking with God, hearing how she, she's the prayer warrior in our house, if one of us could be described that way. Learn from the ways, men, your wife walks more closely with God than you do and, and imitate and follow that example. Humble yourself. And the last one on your job description list from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Consider the way you treat your wife an act of worship to God. Do you ever think about it that way? Two great commandments, love God. And people say, well, I love God. I just can't stand people. No, you don't. Because second great commandment issues, love your neighbor as yourself, your wife included. All of second great commandment issues always spring from first great commandment issues. 
The Bible says that, right? James talks about that. John talks about that. Don't say you love God if you don't love the people created in his image, if you mistreat them. What that means, though, for a husband to obey the first great commandment, I can love God by living out the second great commandment toward my wife. I can demonstrate my love for God by the, the, the tender love I have for her. Do you know what that does? If you are in a situation where you have an unbelieving wife, or you're in a situation where you have a professing, believing wife who is behaving less than entirely sanctified, in that moment, you don't necessarily do it because you feel like it. You do it because you love her king. You do it because you love your master and because you answer to your master. And for Jesus' sake, even in the middle of a, a dark, difficult circumstance, you can say, whether she's worthy of it, Lord, you are. You are worthy of, of the ultimate sacrifice because I remember what the Spirit said through Peter about we're kind of being like Jesus. And I'm not in her hands I'm in your hands, just like Jesus was. He wasn't in Pilate's hands. He wasn't in the hands of those Roman soldiers or, or the religious authorities who arrested him. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In the same way, husbands. That's the way you love your wife. Let's pray.